It's religion today, it's ideology today, and our secularist friends also have a faith. Some kind of Disneyland fantasy. I know how this is going to get heard in the secular world. Where the pseudo-Christian masks are off. That's nonsense, ladies and gentlemen. Apologetics isn't just about giving answers to other people's questions. It's also about learning to question other people's answers or even question the question itself. In a Christian worldview. Well, welcome to Quantum number 161. And this week, I guess, we're going to hear a lot from this band. Please allow me to introduce myself. I'm a man of wealth and taste. That is, of course, the Rolling Stones, whose drummer Charlie Watts died aged 80. We'll say more about that later. I thought it was just such an appropriate song, Sympathy for the Devil, because when we look at what's going on in the world, which is exactly what Quantum does, we do look at what's going on in the world, then I think it's quite hard to deny the existence of evil and uh, the demonic, to be honest. Speaking of which, let's go to... uh, This, and just an incredible story coming out of China. And today, news of how the party goes about brainwashing young minds. Having banned sales of the Bible in 2018, the communists are introducing the study of Xi Jinping thought. From primary school all the way through to university, Chinese kids will now follow a new national curriculum based on what is effectively the gospel according to the Chinese president. The change is reported in China's Global Times, the Communist Party's mouthpiece. The study of Xi Jinping thought means that primary schools will focus on cultivating love for the country, the Communist Party of China and socialism. The thoughts of Xi Jinping will help teenagers establish Marxist beliefs. And there will also be what's described as an attachment to national defence. Well, previous Chinese leaders like Deng Xiaoping have come up with their own... China is going to introduce, or it has actually introduced, the political ideology of Xi Jinping as its religion. That's really what we're saying. Xi Jinping thought has now been written into the constitution. And as you heard there from the wonderful Colin Brazier from uh, GB News, that... The idea is to indoctrinate teenagers and children and also to have it taught all over the place, integrated from primary school up to university, uh, to cultivate the builders and successors of socialism with an all-round moral, intellectual, physical and aesthetic grounding. Um, Xi Jinping thought has 14 main principles. Uh, Complete and deep reform, new developing ideas, absolute authority of the party over the people's army, harmonious living between man and nature. Yeah, there's going to be much more extensive rollout of this. Uh, 
There are going to be themes like party leadership and national defense education in the curriculum. It really is quite as- astonishing. And churches are being asked to have the writings of Xi Jinping instead of the Ten Commandments, for example, on their walls. Now, I think that Xi Jinping, uh, together with North Korea and perhaps one or two others, is, is an example of this trend. And we'll say something more about this authoritarianism. But I, I think it is also seen increasingly in Western countries. Because if you take away God and you take away a source of morality that's out with the ruling elite, then you end up with the ruling elite acting as though they were God. Well, there's a lot more going on in the world as well. Uh, German elections, Canadian elections. I think we'll say more about them next week. But let me just return for a moment to last week's theme, which was Afghanistan. Uh, and by the way, thank you for all of you who who contacted about that. that. It's really good to see this podcast uh, growing in listenership and people again from all over the world and some of the stories coming out of Afghanistan. But I've been thinking a bit about the refugees and people coming from Afghanistan. And there's no question at all that we do have a responsibility. I was hearing of 300 Afghanis who are, for example, going to South Korea because the South Korea regards them not as refugees, but as valued citizens, I think, because of the help they gave to the South Korean government. Well, here is my friend Kanishka Raphael, the Archbishop of Sydney, the Anglican Archbishop of Sydney, on television here explaining why he thinks Australia should take more refugees, a sentiment with which I wholeheartedly concur. Look, I'm calling on the Australian government to be as compassionate as we can be in responding to the unfolding crisis in Afghanistan. And look, there are a few reasons. I mean, uh, you know, uh, Jesus said, love your neighbour as yourself. And after 20 years of involvement in Afghanistan, I think we ought to have no hesitation in saying that these people are our neighbours. That's especially true of those who uh, served alongside Australian Defence Force personnel and assisted us in the things that we were doing there. And then in addition to that, um, the Bible describes God as father of the fatherless and the defender of widows. And we know the Taliban's track record. We know that women and girls, uh, especially girl children, uh, that ethnic and religious minorities are at tremendous uh, risk. And so I think we need to respond to them uh, with with as much compassion and generosity as we can. Kanishka, Scott Morrison... Yeah, I thought that was wonderful. That was a wonderful side of Australia. Um, But this, just right now, is such a depressing place to be. Uh, just in so many ways. Um, here's a clip that kind of indicates how the rest of the world are seeing us. I'm, I'm amazed that other people, that people within Australia don't see this is how we're being perceived. There's little sympathy for anyone ignoring the health orders. Even this group of teenagers caught partying after dark at the bottom of the North Bondi Cliffs. Herded to higher ground by Polair's spotlight and speaker, the eight boys were placed in handcuffs and left to explain a $1,000 fine to mum. Uh, 681 penalty infringement notices issued in the last 24 hours. More than 400 of those notices were again for people being outside of their home without a reasonable excuse. 
to us a bunch of teenagers being handcuffed in the middle of the night and fined $1,000 each for the crime of meeting at a Sydney beach has become normal. But the rest of the world is looking at that footage, looking at that news coverage with abject horror. Yeah, and it really is that bad. You, you heard that? It really is that bad. If I went out just now, and I do intend to go out just now, I'll have to carry a mask. If I meet someone, uh, if I meet a policeman and he asks why I'm not wearing it, I'm going to say because I'm doing vigorous exercise because I'm going out for my walk. And I'm not walking around in the fresh air with a cloth mask over my face when there's nobody around. It, Gladys Berejiklian, our, our premier, who I've got a lot of admiration for, actually. Um, they were... What's the word? How will I put it? Um, she's, you know, she, her and Dr. Chant and others are, are doing the best that they can. But I heard her admit that she was asking people to wear masks outside because what else can she do to be seen to be doing something? But the authoritarianism is really disturbing. You go and have a picnic. You know, I could go and pick up a bacon sandwich from a takeaway and go and sit in a park on my own, away from everyone. And I could be arrested and fined a thousand dollars. Can't meet friends, can't do anything. And then, perhaps most extraordinary of all, is the story of the rescue dogs who police shot because they didn't want people to travel to come and pick them up. They shot them. They killed them. You know, it doesn't take much for Western liberal democracies who've forgotten their roots to turn to authoritarianism. And I'm sorry, but... It's easier for me to get into North Korea than it is to get into Western Australia, where I'm supposed to be just now. I got a fascinating insight in this from, believe it or not, the Mars Hill podcast, The Rise and Fall of Mars Hill, which I've mentioned before and which is absolutely wonderful. And in episode seven in State of Emergency, describing how Mars Hill moved to being a kind of spiritual dictatorship. Listen to this. If you look at the history of totalitarian movements, or more generally, even dictatorships, there's a common and necessary catalyst for a leader to seize power. It's the ability to declare a state of emergency. Almost any government that isn't an absolute monarchy is going to have some kind of checks and balances on one person's authority, some separation of powers. But when you declare a state of emergency, you have a reason to concentrate authority inside a smaller and smaller circle, or even in just one individual, to guide the nation until the time of emergency has passed. You can suspend certain rights, delay due processes, and otherwise justify any expression of power necessary to answer the crisis of the moment. The most famous example of this is the Reichstag Fire Decree in Germany from February 1933. But similar events took place in fascist Italy, Soviet Russia, even going all the way back to ancient Rome. The point isn't the particulars of any one of these ideologies. Let me be clear about that. But it's to look at the mechanics of power. If you can convince people that there's an emergency looming over them and that you're the one to answer the call to fix it, history shows that people are quite ready and willing to hand power over to you. The ability to declare a state of emergency that's, that's what you, if, if you can declare a state of emergency, if you can say this is an emergency, you can take powers to yourself. So, for example, what's happened in Scotland is the Scottish government took emergency powers for, on a temporary basis and is now, of course, seeking to make them permanent. 
and we're doing this for the good of the people and we're doing this to protect people. You manufacture or there is a genuine crisis or you manufacture one or you say that you are the only person who can deal with this. You concentrate authority in a smaller and smaller circle. You deny the rights of people, the right to worship, the right to gather, the right to meet, the the right to speak. You deny all of that and you convince people to go along with it because you say there's a disaster coming. Now, when COVID is eventually over, and I think it'll be years before it's over, and maybe before then, we know the next emergency might be another flu, but I suspect it's just going to be the climate emergency. And everything, everything in the world will be the result and the fault of climate change. And we need strong government to deal with this. And we need to stop people spreading misinformation. And we need this and we need that. And we need these taxes and these powers and so on. We have to be so careful. Pleased to meet you. Hope you guess my name. Bet what's troubling you is the nature of my game. The devil hates freedom. He seeks to bind us, whether it's by religion or whether it's by politics or whether it's by them combined. Okay, we've got a few uh, stories that just indicate as well the confusion that's occurring within uh, society, within Western society. Now, let's go back to Afghanistan. And a columnist writing for MSNBC in the United States has compared pro-lifers to the Taliban. Dean Obladaya, I think, is that how you pronounce the name, asserted that pro-lifers, especially those whose anti-abortion views arise from extreme religious beliefs, are like the Taliban. And introducing pro-life legislation in the United States is tantamount to the Taliban's anti-women policies. Now, the Taliban, just remember what they've done. Prevented women from attending school, denied them careers, subjected them to brutal punishments, such as stoning. And the columnist said, well, not equally as bad, but the efforts of pro-lifers to deprive women of freedom over their own bodies was just as oppressive and extreme. Friends, the West is finished when we have idiocy and comparisons like that being made. The West is finished, if that is the case. And demanding that abortion should be a guaranteed human right Remember what abortion is. It is the taking of a human life within the mother's womb. It is killing a human being. And we are told that is a human right. And if we don't agree with it, we're like the Taliban or we're like Nazis. All right. Come as you are. Listen to this. album Nevermind, a famous album, brilliant album. Um, I think it sold over 30 million copies. This is one of the crazy stories of the week. Spencer Eldon 
is the man who was photographed as a baby on the album cover for Nevermind, and he's suing them, alleging sexual exploitation. Uh, if you haven't seen the cover, it shows him as a four-month-old in a swimming pool, grasping from a dollar bill that's been dangled in front of him on a fishing line. He's saying the nude image constitutes child pornography. Quote, the images expose Spencer's intimate body part and lasciviously displayed Spencer's genitals from the time he was an infant to the present day. Now, usually non-sexualized photos of infants are not considered child pornography. However, he claims he suffered and will continue to suffer lifelong damages and extreme and permanent emotional distress, as well as interference with his normal development and educational progress and medical and psychological treatment. So he's seeking $150,000 from each of the 15 defendants. Yet he told The Guardian six years ago, that's always been a positive thing for me. I'm 23 now and an artist, and this story gave me an opportunity to work with Shepard Fairey for five years, which was an awesome experience. When he found out I was their Nirvana baby, he thought that was really cool. Spencer's father, Rick, said he'd been offered a couple of hundred dollars to take part, and he agreed to do that. It's... What is this? Again, it's part of a culture gone mad. It is greed. It is selfishness. And he may well win. That's not the craziest story this week. This one might be. The militia leader convicted of masterminding the bombing of a Minnesota mosque is asking a judge to legally acknowledge her, inverted commas, transgender identity. Michael Harry was a militia leader who hated Muslims. He devised a plan to, pa- to do a pipe bomb during the building during morning prayers. Nobody was hurt during the community but it really scared people as you can imagine it would deservedly went to jail changed his name to emily claire harry all the newspapers now say she although she has a beard and long male hair um, nonetheless in the world that we live you can identify and she emily michael is now saying because he's a woman he should have a shorter sentence be put to a woman's prison and have an easier life yeah But that's not the craziest story either. We're just going to keep going. Police and hate crime cars. Uh, (laughs) Police are colouring their cars in rainbow colours because they're to be nice and friendly and spangly so that people who suffered from hate crime can report them, particularly hate crime online. What the police are doing is, and this is really scary actually, They are focusing on incidents, statements made online and off, which are then recorded as non-crime hate incidents, of which there were 120,000 logged between 2014 and 2019. This is in the UK. Um, A non-crime incident, by the way, is logged when a criminal offence has not taken place, but the victim or any other person perceives that the incident was motivated wholly or partially by hostility on the basis of religion, race, gender, and so on. I could be reporting people every single day. But that's not the craziest story. I think this one is pretty scary too. Listen to this lady. 
This has been my first year in preschool with a class of my own, teaching alongside another queer neurodivergent educator, and we have been rocking our two's class. We've been talking about gender and skin color and consent and empathy and our bodies and autonomy. It's been fabulous. But our teaching team is shifting and a new person is being onboarded, someone with many years of experience. So today at the lunch table, when the topic of gender and genitals came up, one of our students plainly looked up and said, well, I'm a girl today, but I know that teacher Ko isn't. No, they're Envy. And the look on the incoming teacher's face was priceless. She was shocked in a good way. And she just looked around at the two of us and said, this class is incredible. And I am so impressed. Wow. Just to think that she's teaching children and she wants to talk to children about genitals. I'm so excited about that. Wow. But this one is the craziest one of all, and I'm going to let Mercy Maroki from GB News explain the story. It's about the tiger who came to tea, and we'll just let Mercy tell you the story. A Scottish campaign group called Zero Tolerance, which is mostly taxpayer-funded, has criticised children's books such as The Tiger Who Came to Tea because they say the books are reinforcing harmful gender stereotypes and, down the line, causing sexual harassment and rape. The Tiger Who Came to Tea by German author Judith Kerr has been a staple in children's bookshelves in Britain and abroad for over 50 years. It tells the story of a tiger who joins a little girl, Sophie, for tea, eats all the food in the house, drinks everything. Then when Sophie's father comes home to find that all the food and drink is gone, he suggests the whole family go and have a nice family meal at a cafe. That's it. That's the story. Are you offended? Of course not, because chances are you're not insufferable. Ordinary people read the book to their children and say, oh, isn't that nice? But zero tolerance have said the tiger who came to tea is reflective of a society that we need to think more closely about. No, it's really not. It's just a book about a fictional tiger who came to tea. They say, well, why is the tiger male rather than female or gender neutral? It doesn't reflect real society. So hold on for a second. What you find unrealistic about a literal talking tiger ringing a doorbell, sitting at a dinner table, then proceeding to casually consume tea and biscuits with two humans is that the tiger is not gender neutral? What a skill it must be to be so utterly intolerable. This organisation... Isn't that incredible? And that's in Scotland, my country. Yeah. Well, I did say we would do the Rolling Stones. Um, this is wonderful. drumming at the beginning, the drumming throughout. It's Charlie Watts, of course. He uh, he was the cool guy in, in the Rolling Stones. He died this week. Um, he was quite reserved. He was dignified, dapper. He was never flamboyant. He was a jazz drummer, actually, and he did bring something very, very, very distinctive to the Rolling Stones. He's generally considered to be one of the finest rock drummers of 
all time. My friend Steve McAlpine described him as the sartorially elegant, clean living, maritally faithful Rolling Stone. I could not foresee this thing happening to you If I look hard enough into the setting sun My love will laugh with me before the morning comes I see a red door and I want to taste it Well, someone else who died, we say goodbye to, is this man. That's Don Everly of the Everly Brothers. His brother Phil had died, I think, seven years ago uh, from Tennessee. He and his brothers, enormous influences on people like the Beatles. And then someone else died, this man here. We're moving now on to the church. Ahab went to meet Elijah, and when he saw Elijah, he said to him, Is that you, you troubler of Israel? It's a long time since God's people have on any great scale been considered troublers in our nation. It means agitators. It means persona non grata. It means that we're so faithful to God that the unfaithfulness of our nation is boldly challenged to the point where we're considered a dangerous influence in our land. Dangerous, that is, to ungodliness and to sin, not to people's life and welfare. It's a compliment to be called a troubler in times like these. That was Greg Haslam. Uh, I, I think, I, want, I mean, I met Greg at Westminster Chapel I found him to be a wonderful man. I found him to be a humble man and a gracious man, a godly man, um, and, a, and an excellent preacher. And I loved what his son wrote about him in tribute. Uh, I thought of this in terms of my own dad as well. What many knew of dad in public was true of him in private. His life was marked by integrity and sincerity. He was the same man through and through. As I've reflected over the years, I think this is the main reason my, why my brothers and I were able to listen to him whether at church among hundreds or over dinner with the family, and take seriously all that he believed and spoke about. Where many pastor's kids feel the burden of performance that turns into resentment, I can say that I felt nothing but the privilege of getting to be with Dad all the time and not just on Sundays. I know I speak for my brothers James and Joshua in expressing this. Just sorry to see him go. He had Alzheimer's for the past five years, quite seriously so. And a good man gone, and may the Lord raise up many more like him. Okay, let me say just something about uh, the good news, evangelism, and so on. I, because I've been locked down in this way, I was asked to be part of a thing called Australia Praise, where I did the prayer notes for it. And these were people, charismatics, Catholics, everybody, and I got to teach a little bit of the Bible to them and share with many different people, thousands of people, actually. 
And it gave me this idea, or in fact, it was my wife who normally has all the good ideas. He said, why don't you do something on Job? So every day at 11 o'clock, at the time when we're normally getting all the COVID statistics and being told what new restrictions we have and deaths and so on, I thought I'd put out something. I was going to say two to three minutes, but it's five minutes. Just go, just coffee with Job. Meeting lots of people, very interestingly this week, lots of people are basically saying, look, why can't we just accept that people get sick and people die? We just have to get on with living our lives. And I think that's true, actually. I, I think it's not that you don't take sensible precautions, but we live in a world of sickness. We live in a world where there are natural disasters. We live in a world where there are terrorist attacks. And we mustn't be overcome by fear. In fact, I, I was just reading here in the paper today in the Australian of Zaki Anwari, who is the young Afghan footballer who died falling from a plane. And it's just incredible. He was young and had never seen the Taliban. He was afraid. He was afraid of something he hadn't seen. What does Job do? This is astonishing. Job got up, tore his robe, shaved his head. Then he fell to the ground in worship and said, Naked I came from my mother's womb and naked I shall depart. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. May the name of the Lord be praised. You know what Job, Job did? It's not that he didn't mourn. Christ, COVID, coffee and Job. That's, that's what we're looking at. And do you know this? I'm actually loving doing it. This is good news. How can the book of Job be such good news? I think it's a brilliant book for the times that we're in. So why, why not follow us on YouTube? Why not subscribe to it? And you can watch it whenever you want uh, or join us at 11 o'clock Sydney time uh, every day. Well, Monday to Friday. I think on Sundays I may <coughs> do Romans and I think I might take Saturdays off. My top 10 podcasts. I think we're on to number four. Um, this one. My guest today is Greg Sheridan, well known to Australians, but many people beyond Australia. He's one of our country's foremost security experts and commentators. He's the foreign affairs editor for the Australian newspaper. He's written seven or eight books, I think, uh, on Asia, on Asia-Australia relationships, on Australia-American relationships. His latest book is Christians, the Urgent Case for Jesus in Our World. Well, Greg, welcome. I have to say that I think... It's the wonderful John Anderson. Highly, highly recommended. Uh, there he's introducing his latest one with Greg Sheridan, the uh, foreign editor of the Australian newspaper. Guy who's just come out with a wonderful book called Christians, The Urgent Case for Christ Today. Um, again, some more news to you, just a heads up. Uh, Greg Sheridan and I are going to start a new podcast where he and I are just going to discuss... A chapter of his book each time. So keep your eye out for that one. Well, I'm going to love you and leave you. As I said, uh, I have been thinking about the Rolling Stones and playing their music. Um, I did prefer the, the Beatles if you wanted that argument, but the Stones as well. And I think my favourite song of theirs is this one we're going out on, Give Me Shelter, because it's such an angry song. It's such a passionate song. And, you know, we started off with sympathy for the devil and then painted black. And I think for me, we come to Christ saying, Lord, give me shelter. Give me shelter from the storm. Give me shelter. Um, I hope that you will know the shelter of God. I hope that you will know the peace of Christ. Feel free to support this on, on the Podbean fundraiser. That's always appreciated. Help us to do it. Uh, suggestions, comments, criticisms, fine 
throw them all into me. You'll get the links to most of these stories on the website and hopefully see you next week. God bless you. Bye.